You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about the future of pediatrics. Joining me is a very expert guest in this area, Dr. Alexander Fix, who's a professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and holds a distinguished endowed chair in pediatrics, is the director of Clinical Futures, a research center of emphasis, and the director of the Possibilities Project at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is also the Director of Pediatric Research in Office Settings for the American Academy of Pediatrics. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Fix. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Well, obviously, from your many titles, we know that you do a lot of things at CHOP and Penn and elsewhere, things like research, medical education, clinical care, and lots more. So I'm wondering, as we talk about the future of pediatrics, if you can tell us more about the work that you do and the teams that you're on that led you to have you talking about this topic. Well, all of these groups I lead in one way or another are focused on building the future of primary care, especially for children. Here at CHOP, they include the Possibilities Project. That's the health system's primary care innovation program. It brings together research, quality improvement, and operational expertise to think about how to innovate, or what sometimes is called disrupt, how we deliver primary care to make it more efficient, effective, and patient-friendly. I also lead, as you mentioned, Clinical Futures, which is a research center of emphasis here at CHOP. The center has more than 85 faculty from many specialties of pediatrics, including primary care, but also everything from surgery to radiology to all kinds of medical specialties. And they're all doing cutting edge research using approaches like comparative effectiveness research or clinical trials to really test how we can make pediatric care better with a goal of translating those discoveries into better outcomes for children. You also mentioned the American Academy of Pediatrics Pediatric Research and Office Settings Network, also called PROS, that I work with. That group's been around for about 35 years and really takes promising research that's often developed locally and tests it on a national scale to see if these ideas that may work in one setting or another can really translate to generalizable lessons about how we deliver better primary care to improve health for kids. Well, you do such fascinating work. And I know clinically, you're a primary care pediatrician like myself. And although I'm a primary care pediatrician, I'm not really sure I know the roots of primary care. And so before we talk about the future, maybe we should talk about the past. So I would imagine that primary care is one of the oldest forms of medicine because it feels old fashioned in that way, sort of, you know, developing those longitudinal relationships with patients and families, talking about things like health promotion and wellness and obviously sick care when it's needed. But is there a definition that exists to better define than what I just said, what primary care is? Mm -hmm. And how are you thinking about the ways in which that definition might be evolving? Well, 
Yes, primary care is part of a healing tradition of medicine that really dates back thousands of years. However, many people really trace the origins of our current primary care system, especially here in the U.S., to the early 20th century. Interestingly, there were these spots called milk stations mm. in the late 19th and early 20th century where there was supervision of infant feeding and growth. They were often run by public health nurses, but supervised by the very first generation of what was you know, eventually to become pediatricians. Very cool. Early in the 20th century, they were renamed and expanded and they became called infant welfare clinics, well baby conferences or child health conferences. Hmm. And then when Congress passed the National Maternity and Infancy Protection Act, which is a mouthful, back in 1921, eventually called the Shepherd Towner Act, this program rapidly expanded where federal money was given to states to establish programs to educate people about prenatal health and infant welfare with a goal of cutting high infant mortality rates. Mm. And lo and behold, even though the program was eventually canceled in the late 1920s, it inspired the later Social Security Act, and data showed that it worked. Mm. It really did appear that during the time that the act was implemented, infant mortality fell. And one of the interesting things in terms of demand for primary care is that as folks began to be exposed to these different programs, conferences focused on child health, the demand for what eventually would become pediatric primary care grew and grew, eventually leading to the development of pediatric private practice. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's totally fascinating that it it really is part of this longstanding tradition, mm -hmm. but really came to light through a set of, you know, changes that just happened about 100 years ago. Right. Um, in terms of the actual definition of primary care, that's evolved during this century, too. But there are certain key elements that everyone agrees upon as really being fundamental to primary care. These include first contact. So primary care is the people you call first generally when you have a problem. Mm -hmm. Longitudinal, so that we follow kids from early in their lives throughout childhood until they eventually reach adulthood. Mm -hmm. Comprehensive in that it includes elements that you mentioned earlier, including prevention, but also comprehensive illness management and acute care. Mm -hmm. There's an emphasis on coordination so that it, care is coordinated between primary care and specialists should they be needed, and different needs of children can be met regardless of what they are. There's a strong community orientation, which is seen in connection to public health programs and health departments and other organizations. And I think one of the most interesting elements of what goes into the definition of primary care, and one maybe where there's the most room for growth, is the idea of accountability, that somehow primary care is really responsible for keeping tabs on how families are doing, checking in with our well visits and perhaps other systems, and making sure that kids are on track to live the healthiest lives they can. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it sounds like something that might get harder as practices get bigger and communities get bigger, right? It's a little bit different than when we used to hang a shingle and people would come to your house and you'd live in the same neighborhood as them. So I'm curious about how that is going to evolve, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit in your work in terms of the future of pediatrics. But first, there was something you just touched on in terms of 
recruitment to this field. And all I hear about lately is how there's a shortage of primary care providers and that we keep hearing that this is just going to get worse over time. So I'm wondering if you can just tell me, as we're talking about the history of primary care, what's the current landscape look like? There's currently about 66,000 general pediatricians in the United States, of whom about 11,000 are certified in another specialty. Mm. But even with what seems like a huge number of people, there are major workforce shortages expected in pediatrics, including in pediatric primary care, as well as specialty care, by 10 years from now. What that means is that what we see now in specialties like developmental and behavioral pediatrics, where getting appointments for children is exceedingly difficult, is expected to spread to other specialties. The situation for children is you know, made especially more challenging since family medicine, which used to play a larger role in primary care, is tending to shift away from caring for especially young children to caring for more of the adolescents and then young adults and later adults. Hmm. The other pattern that's really concerning and, and one that I think we don't necessarily think about quite as much is that the concentration of general pediatricians is really greatest along the coasts in the Northeast, in the West Coast, in California, in rural areas, and in particular in the South, there's far fewer pediatricians. And that's concerning because over time, population growth is really ballooning in some of the areas where there are fewer pediatricians, while it's shrinking in some of the areas where pediatricians are more most concentrated. And, and one of the statistics I just found kind of shocking is that In large parts of the country, there's no pediatricians per 10,000 children living there, Mm. whereas in some parts, there's more than eight per 10,000. So we really have an uneven distribution. Mm -hmm. Well, for any trainees who are out there listening, this is really one of the best jobs. So I would encourage people to consider primary care if they haven't. And certainly, as you mentioned, thinking about where you're going to build your practice and what communities you want to serve and that there really are many communities out there who can really benefit from your help. And so thinking about looking at rural practices, and I know there are a lot of programs that try to recruit physicians to rural areas. So we would just love to encourage folks to really think about those careers because they can be so meaningful. Now, the landscape is not only changing in terms of our workforce, but also in the types of patients that we see. I mean, in my short career, I feel like things have changed, but is there evidence to support this? Are the patients that we're seeing now in 2023 really that much different than what primary care pediatricians saw 10 to 20 years ago? Really, there's been a dramatic shift. One that I think that we sometimes may sort of feel on a subconscious level, but don't necessarily fully appreciate as we're taking care of children. Here are some examples, and the differences are both in who pediatricians are seeing, but also the content of what's in those visits. Here are a few examples. So as one example, between 1997 and 2001, only about 20, 25 years ago, only 18.5% of visits to pediatricians were Medicaid-insured patients. 
Now that number is almost double mm. with over 35% of patients Medicaid insured who are coming to primary care. So the payer system is very, very different. Mm -hmm. Before pediatrics was much more of a specialty of infants and young children, but adolescent care has just ballooned. Mm -hmm. For example, only about 10% of visits in primary care were by adolescents about 20 to 25 years ago where now it's maybe one in six or even more than that. Hmm. And that's made a huge difference in terms of the population level access to primary care among teens. About 20 years ago, 89% of kids in the zero to two-year-old age range had had a visit in the past 12 months, according to parent report. By recent data, that's up to 93. Hmm. But the jump is much more dramatic for 11 to 17-year-olds. Back around 2000, only close to 60% had had a visit in the last year. Now that's up over 80%. Hmm. And that's really changing who's coming to primary care. Mm -hmm. And again, that, that content is also really different. The proportion of preventive visits is up from about 30% to over 40% during the period. The proportion of U.S. children with a disability has also grown. And so we're seeing many, many more kids with disabilities. For example, among boys, about 20 years ago, only 9% had a chronic health condition. That's up to over 13% mm. now. And finally, mental health problems have just exploded. If we look back about 20 years, only about 2 or 3% of the visits we saw were among kids who had a mental health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. That's up to about 6% now. So mm -hmm. I think that crisis in mental health that so many have identified, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, and that many clinicians feel as they're working in the office is so real because mm -hmm. we're seeing more than double the number of visits coming in with kids with those types of concerns, and we have to get better at addressing them. Mm -hmm. Right. It's Reassuring to hear that the data supports what I think many of us anecdotally feel. And it also, I think, shows that people are seeing primary care for the full range of services that we offer that you mentioned earlier when we talked about the definition, right? So in the past, maybe it was just the place that you went for your early childhood immunizations and you didn't need to go as a teenager. But now I think there's an appreciation for what we can offer adolescents, for example, right? The mental health support and the anticipatory guidance and safety counseling that we offer. So there's a lot that we can give to our primary care patients throughout their age ranges and not just in that early infancy period. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's really true. And, and it makes for a very different and I think richer experience in practicing primary care. Mm -hmm. Now, something really fun that I think you would appreciate is that I recently found a family member's vaccine record from the 1940s Dr. Fix, it is handwritten on a piece of the doctor's stationery, and the only things that it included were pertussis, diphtheria, and smallpox. And I'm sure that that physician could never have dreamed of both how many more vaccines would be available now, or that we would have an electronic health record that advised us on when those vaccines were due and documented their delivery for us. Now, we both know that the EHR has brought with it many pros and cons, but how do you think it's going to continue to evolve in our practices? You know, when I began practice, everything was done on paper mm -hmm. and there were some real challenges. We had visits fairly often 
where we couldn't find a chart or where certain details were missing. Electronic records are imperfect, but information is much more complete now. Mm -hmm. But the growth of EHRs has really been dramatic over the last 10 years. They're basically now used at nearly all pediatric primary care practices in the U.S., though they've really been a mixed blessing in some ways. The early systems, you know, were really felt to too often prioritize billing and documentation, Mm -hmm. aspects of care that generally burden pediatricians over truly meeting the needs of families or clinicians. Mm -hmm. Many clinicians found themselves needing to document more details in the record and needing to fill billing roles when EHRs were implemented that previously could have been covered by office staff. Many complain about too many clicks and identify the EHR as a potential source of clinician burnout. Mm -hmm. And several studies have shown really a huge burden to clinicians in terms of documentation in the evenings or weekends when you know, clinicians would normally have time to recover and and rejuvenate before coming back to the office. All of that, I think, sets the stage for what I hope will be a renaissance or a redirection in how we use electronic health records to really accomplish some of those goals that technology can support, but weren't really front and center in the early days. Mm -hmm. So how do we really think about how we undo that legacy of burdensome documentation to really minimize it and promote care delivery. I think that's a big shift that's likely to take time and that also is likely to prioritize the doctor-patient relationship and supporting some of those key tenets of primary care mentioned above, like care coordination, community connectedness, supporting clinical teams and families to work together to really create more accountability. I think if EHRs move in that direction, there can be some real pros that emerge from, you know, what has been really a mixed start, as as I think you so nicely described. Well, one of the things that I love about our EHR is the clinical decision support tools. And I'm wondering if you can give an example for folks who might not know what that is or how that works. How do these clinical decision support tools improve patient outcomes? So clinical decision support is really one of those ways that electronic health records can go from being a burden to a support to clinical care. And the definition of clinical decision support is really a tool that provides clinicians, staff, patients, or others with knowledge and person-specific information that I love this, is that is intelligently filtered, (laughs) presented at appropriate times, and really can enhance health and healthcare. Mm -hmm. And it's a wide range of tools, but often thought of as computerized alerts, but really can be much more than that, including you know, helpful order sets, workflow supports, and and connections to the larger community. Really, the big idea with clinical decision support is making clinical decision-making, communication, and the work of taking care of patients easier. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite projects in that area was a project I, I led with a team here at CHOP about 10 years ago that focused on supporting families and clinicians and shared decision-making around asthma. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that I thought were really neat about that system and that 
herald, you know, what I hope will be a better future is that the tools developed went beyond office-based questionnaires on symptoms or really clinician work and focused on checking in with patients at home on a monthly basis. Mm. Then they and their clinicians could be prompted to check in with one another if problems were found, for example, worsening asthma control. Mm-hmm. With this approach, we were able to decrease the number of flares that parents reported for their children and the number of days parents missed work. Mm-hmm. So if these systems are implemented in an intelligent way that really engages the clinical team, families, or both, we can really make a big difference, I think, in terms of child health outcomes without creating lots of additional work. Mm-hmm. And there's been lots of success in other areas as well, including to the vaccine area that you alluded to, where we can now, you know, make sense of many, many vaccines that are due in a quick and very focused way to give people guidance on what's due, mm-hmm. or work in ADHD, where we can get information back from families to under understand how they're doing in terms of their symptoms, potentially medication side effects, and and be sure that care is on track. So Mm -hmm. lots of room for development in that area and very exciting work. Yeah, very exciting. I've definitely appreciated it in my clinical practice. And some of the tools that you mentioned have been really helpful in that communication piece with families, as you mentioned, getting some of that data when they are at home that then helps feed into your visit when they're with you. So I appreciate that. Now, Part of your work with Clinical Futures and the Possibilities Project that you talked about before is not only trying to predict the future of primary care, but trying to create it. And so I'm wondering what some of the other innovations are that you're working on and what do you think is coming next? Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that. I'd like to highlight a couple of examples that I I think illustrate some of what we may be able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You know, first with this work, we've really built a platform to gather patient-reported information and use that information not just as, you know, a quick survey that's collected that's, you know, sort of put in a place that doesn't really have an outcome or an effect associated with it, but use it to link families based on what they report to needed services. For example, when parents report hunger or wanting to learn more about WIC, on a nutrition screening tool the Possibilities Project has built, they're directed to CHOP's medical financial partnership that can provide a range of supports around nutrition specifically, but also financial wellness more broadly. Mm -hmm. In this way, these patient-reported surveys, as implemented, aren't just a data collection tool, but really a platform for connecting families with services they need in a way that is efficient, minimizing burden on the clinical team, and really has the potential to make clinical care both more effective and more efficient, I think aligned with that idea of really the community connectedness of primary care. In a second example, we've brought a technology tool developed by Dr. Flora Winston and her team at CHOP to primary care to adjust motor vehicle accidents, a leading cause of injury and death for teens. At most primary care practices now at CHOP are able to have teens complete a virtual driving assessment. And that tool assesses how teens respond to dangerous situations. And teens can really experience much more in 10 to 15 minutes of using the virtual driving assistant than they might experience in driving for a very long time on the road. 
And what that then does is provides feedback to parents and the teens to guide safer driving practice. I like this because it's an example of a greater priority of bringing tools that haven't necessarily been historically part of pediatrics or pediatric primary care to the bedside to make care better in ways that really address those big salient risks to kids that that sometimes are hard to wrap our head around and 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 you know take care of as part of routine care. Dr. Winston did do a podcast with us earlier so folks can go back and listen to that too. That's wonderful. Yeah, she has great insights around this area that I I think are worthwhile for everyone. So we talked a little bit about the shortages that we expect in primary care and we've also covered a lot of ground in terms of where primary care started, where it's going. And I think there's a lot of hopefulness here. So what advice do you give the trainees who you work with who are thinking about their future as a primary care pediatrician? And how might they expect their career to change over the years ahead? So I think that there's really quite a world of progress that continues to blossom and in primary care in terms of how we take care of kids and meet those goals we talked about at the outset of what primary care is really meant to be. I think for trainees, as much as one might want to focus on and needs to focus on learning specific facts, learning flexibility and adaptability and openness to new approaches really will be key to success because the facts and the details are likely to change but the growth is likely to come through a flexibility and an integration of new systems and new ideas as they emerge into how primary care is delivered. There's a few specific tools that I, I think are maybe underemphasized, but I think will become increasingly important. Communication is just an essential element of primary care that I, I think the science is really blossoming there as well. That could be issues around how we deliver difficult news in a way that families will hear it and that will help them move in ways that promote the health of their children despite challenges. There's a wonderful emerging literature around vaccination and how we ought to be communicating to to families who increasingly might be coming to us with mistrust of science or vaccine hesitancy. Mm -hmm. And I think breaking through those barriers is really going to be a key for primary care docs, you know, and, and being effective in the future. And then everyone is thinking more given labor, you know, the labor shortages that we've talked about before and a recognition of how important different roles are to health, including roles in the community that primary care docs need to really be thinking about systems and teams and integration of different roles and how those collectively can make a difference for children. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one of the wild cards is this, you know, emerging growth that, you know, I wouldn't want to go too deep into now, but I, I think we all need to keep an eye on of artificial intelligence and what kinds of systems may be able to automate and augment the pediatrician role in a way that's safe and reliable, all the while maintaining what I, what I think is probably the most important aspect of primary care, which is that 
very strong and meaningful doctor-patient relationship built on trust so that families are responsive to and can count on their primary care docs. And so it's a wonderfully exciting time in primary care. But again, I, I think the key lessons in training may be understanding and engaging with these meta issues as much as folks mm -hmm. are learning the facts about how to take care of different sorts of problems in practice. Mm -hmm. Such a good point. I think there's trust missing in many aspects of medicine now. So as you mentioned, rebuilding that and the communication piece being so important, I think that was a little bit of a vital talk plug too. And I think that, um, as you mentioned, the ways that we engage with our patients, both through the electronic health record and some of those clinical decision support tools that we mentioned earlier, but as well in public health, as we saw during the pandemic, right, the way that many primary care doctors responded to public health emergencies in their communities, and with advocacy, which we're seeing a lot of primary care pediatricians get involved in, in addressing some of the leading causes of death in children. And I think Dr. Winston's work with motor vehicle accidents is a reflection of that as well. So thank you for covering so much today. You've brought us from the historical roots of primary care right into the future of pediatrics. And I appreciate all of the work that you and your partners at Clinical Futures and the Possibilities Project and everything else that you do at Carabots clinically. And so we just are so grateful for you sharing all of that with us today and all the work that you do. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And if listeners have questions or ideas related to the future of primary care, they can certainly feel free to reach out to me at fixfiks at chop.edu. We welcome that input and feedback from the larger community. That's great. And to the trainees out there who are listening, primary care is an amazing career. And I hope that Dr. Fix serves as an inspiration for you. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.